Would you join me as we pray? Our Father and our God, as we open the Word of God together this morning, we pray that you would also open our hearts as well as our minds. First, to understand what you have written, and then also to let that word sink into our hearts and affect our wills and our emotions and lead us in a direction that will enable us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you start to think of the unity of the Christian church, you can get depressed in a hurry. This is a picture that someone has humorously used to try to help us understand the relations between the variety of denominations of Christianity that we see these days. You can't read the fine print, so I'll read it for you. This sort of gives you a sense about how various denominations feel about the other denominations. Now, we live in a community of a variety of denominations. Perhaps you can relate to some of them. This figure shows that the Presbyterians make fun of the Wesleyans, and the Wesleyans see the Baptist as too strict, and the Presbyterians feel superior to the Baptists, and the Catholics think everybody that's Protestant is Baptist, and the Catholics are okay with the Eastern Orthodox, and the Eastern Orthodox likes the Oriental Orthodox, and the Eastern Orthodox sympathizes sometimes with the Pentecostals, and the Lutherans have a crush on the Eastern Orthodox, and the Lutherans like the Anglicans, and the Presbyterians respect the Lutherans, but the Lutherans don't respect the Presbyterians. Now, that's a humorous way to look at it, but the interesting thing is it's actually worse than that. In that little figure, you saw 10 families of denominations, but within each of those families are a multitude of others that are their own distinct denominations so that someone has uh, suggested and done the math that there are approximately 41,000 Christian denominations in the world today. Now, it wasn't always that way. Essentially, uh, there was one church until the Council of Ephesus in 431, and then the Council of Chalcedon in 451, which dealt with the natures of Christ, and that produced a spring-off of the Assyrian church and the Monophysite church, and then there was the great schism in the 11th century in which Western uh, Christianity turned into Roman Catholicism as opposed to Eastern Orthodoxy. And then, of course, there was the 16th century Reformation. And after the 16th century Reformation, all bets were off. There was no hope of ecclesiastical unity. There was the Reformed Protestantism, there was Anabaptism, there was Anglicanism, and many, many other ecclesiastical communities sprung out of the Reformation. And so without any central ecclesiastical governing body, denominations multiplied after the 16th century. Will the Church of Jesus Christ ever be united again? doesn't appear to be headed in that direction, even remotely. Uh, John White, a number of years ago, observed that considering all the divisions 
that have plagued Christendom for 2,000 years, it is amazing that God has continued to use the church to extend his kingdom. It's all the more remarkable when we observe that Jesus, in his great prayer to the Father, in John 17, makes unity a primary focus of his prayer. And when you think that if the Father would answer anyone's prayer, it would be the prayer of his own Son. Perhaps it is we, then, who misunderstand what genuine Christian unity is really all about. Our text this morning is John 17, beginning in verse 20 and reading to the end of the chapter. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Listen to this, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. But let's back up for a moment. Let's remember what we have learned from this prayer so far. This is the real Lord's Prayer. Uh, what we know as the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6 and Luke chapter 11 is really our Lord's instruction on prayer. We learned that a number of weeks ago. It was given in response to the disciples' request to Jesus to teach them to pray. That Lord's Prayer is a wonderful framework for our praying. While we use it from time to time as a prayer in worship, it is better used as a guide for how to pray in the will of God. But this prayer in John 17 is the only substantive prayer, lengthy prayer of Jesus, that was prayed in the presence of his disciples so the disciples would remember and record its content. So this in chapter 17 is truly the Lord's prayer. And for whom is the Lord praying? We learn, first of all, that he prays for himself. And then he prays for his disciples, both for those who are present with him in the upper room, the 11 in the upper room, just before his betrayal and subsequent crucifixion, but also for the disciples throughout history from that time forward. For verse 20 says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that includes you and me. But it is also important to recognize who Jesus does not pray for. He is not praying for the world. Verse 9 says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He makes a clear distinction 
between the world and the church, between believers and unbelievers. He is praying for believers. He is not praying for the world. So essentially, Jesus is praying for the church, which makes this prayer an incredibly important prayer for us to consider. And up to now, we have been greatly encouraged uh, when we have looked at its content. But when we get to Jesus' prayer for unity, well, we find ourselves scratching our heads a bit. The impression is that the opposite of unity is what characterizes the church in the present age. Now, again, backing up in the first petition in this chapter, Jesus prays for himself in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And we recognize two aspects of this prayer that the father glorify him, referring, first of all, to his crucifixion. Of the, sanct- the, the crucifixion of Christ displays the nature and character of Christ like nothing else. The love of God for lost humanity, the grace and mercy of God in sending his son as a sacrifice in our place, as well as the justice of God in punishing our sin through our substitute. All of those things glorify the Lord. But he also refers to his future glory in the presence of the Father. Verse 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In that section, we also learned something critically important in understanding the nature of the church. We learned that salvation, from God's perspective, is laid out in no uncertain terms in this section. We learn that the church comes into existence because of God. God the Father takes a people out of the world and he gives those people to Christ. And we learn that the Father also gives to Christ authority over all people so that Christ would give eternal life to all those that the Father has given to him. And this is a great assurance for the believers. We are saved because the Father has taken us out of the world, given us to Christ, given Christ authority so that Christ gives eternal life to us. All the initiative is from God and all the giving is from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. And so that first petition is rich in its implications for us believers, even as Christ prays for himself that he would be glorified. The second petition is for safety. The world is a nasty place, we learned a couple of weeks ago, a dangerous place, a morally disintegrating place. Jesus is leaving the world, and he is giving eternal life to those the Father has given given him, but curiously, he is leaving these believers in this nasty world. Believers are vulnerable in this world. Temptations are everywhere. The enemy of our souls seeks to derail our train to the promised land. The remnants of our sinful nature still rears its ugly head. And so from inside and out, we are in danger in this world. And yet Jesus leaves us here. So he prays to the Father that we would be kept safe. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus tells the Father that while he was with them, he has kept them safe, and he lost none while he was with them. 
Now that he's leaving, he asked the father to do the same. This is a spiritual safety net. It does not mean that we would be free from trouble, free from persecution, free from oppression, but it does mean that the father will assure us that he will keep us under the authority of his name, that we will still know Christ as Lord, and that he will carry us to an eternity in the presence of Christ. And then the third petition tells us how the Father will do that. Jesus prays that we will be sanctified, which means set apart for holy use and made genuinely holy, transformed through a process into the image and likeness of Jesus through this process of sanctification. And the way that happens, Jesus says, is through the ministry of the word. Verse 17 puts it this way, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. That's how we grow in Christ. That's how we are sanctified through being immersed in the word of God, through our individual study of the Bible, through group studies, through the preaching and teaching of the word, through means that we have even in our own church like study with the pastor. And it is through sanctification that the Father keeps us, protects us, and provides safe passage to eternity. And so where we come to the final petitions in this prayer is in verse 20. And the fourth petition is for unity. Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Listen that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. In I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Now this is not the first time in this prayer that the issue of unity has come up. Back in verse 11, Jesus prayed this way, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Even the Father's safety, the Father's keeping, is meant to create unity in the church. And as we have seen, that sanctification through the Word is the means by which the Father keeps those He's given to Christ. The sanctification that comes through the Word is meant to create unity in the church. But what kind of unity does Jesus have in mind? What would Jesus say about our 41,000 denominations? What would Jesus say about our apparently fractured Christendom? Well, first of all, we need to understand what unity is not. Unity is not an organizational unity. And here's where we misunderstand the true biblical sense of unity. We think that in order for there to be unity in the church, we must be organized under one institutional structure. And that's what Jesus, that's not at all what Jesus has in mind. Listen, verse 21, that they may all be one, listen, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
You see, the issue for Jesus in terms of unity is relational. It's not structural at all. In the early days of the church, there was a great deal of vitality and growth and expansion, but little organizational unity. Later, when Constantine was converted and declared Christianity to be the religion of the Roman Empire, the church became increasingly organized and centralized. And during the Middle Ages, there was pretty much one united ecclesiastical body. But those were not the times of great fruitfulness among the people of God. There were not large expansions of faith. People were not drawn increasingly to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. A Charles Spurgeon Uh, speaking of the church in the Middle Ages, wrote this, the world was persuaded that God had nothing to do with that great, crushing, tyrannous, superstitious, ignorant thing which called itself Christianity, and thinking men became infidels, and it was the hardest possible thing to find a genuine, intelligent believer north, south, east, or west. So organizational unity really had nothing to do with the kind of unity Jesus was praying for. Because as we'll see, the unity Jesus prayed for would have vast influence for the growth and expansion of the Christian faith. And perhaps we get too exercised about the existence of so many denominations. And so the unity Jesus is praying for is not an organizational unity. It's also not a type of conformity. The kind of Jesus, kind of unity Jesus has in mind is not conformity one to another. That is that all Christians and all churches would be exactly alike. In fact, the kind of unity the Bible calls for is a unity in diversity. We would find that within the local church as well as between various local churches. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and pick up the, the tension that we have between the unity of the church and the diversity within it. Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, listen, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says, there is one body, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then he goes on to say this, but grace was given to me, to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led hosts of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then he says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, listen, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part 
is working properly makes the body to grow that it builds itself up in love. So you see, keeping the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is accomplished in the local church through the beauty of diversity. And even different churches in different communities in different cultures will clearly have different expressions. That's why we have a mission statement for the village church. Now that mission statement is consistent with the mission of the church at large, the Great Commission, but has unique application here to this church, to this community of seniors. We are building a community of forgiveness, purpose, and hope in Jesus Christ. So the unity Jesus prays for is not a unity of organization or a unity of conformity. And so what is Jesus praying for? Well, the unity that Jesus is praying for is spiritual and relational, and it is rooted in the kind of unity we find in the Godhead. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, listen to this, are in me and I in you, may they also be in us. Jesus is praying for the kind of unity that exists with the Father and the Son. They are united in their nature, in their character, in their purpose, in their strategy, even though each one has different roles. The Father is the creator, the Son is the redeemer, the Son of God incarnate, the Spirit is the sanctifier, but they, though three in person, are one, unity and diversity in the Godhead. In the same way, the unity Jesus prays for is a spiritual unity. It involves a genuine spiritual union with Christ. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. You see, dear friends, the more we grow through sanctification by the word, the more we become like Christ, and the more all of us grow into the likeness of Christ, the more united we'll be. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 about this union with Jesus Christ that brings us together and forms this unity within the body of Christ. He says in Romans chapter 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we who have been belonging to Christ by faith, have been baptized into Christ Jesus, crucified with him. But now listen to what he says as he expands on this connection. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. You see, dear friends, it is our spiritual union with Christ that provides for genuine unity in the body of Christ. That unity, of course, has a content. We saw that in the Ephesians passage we read earlier, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. 
And you have other passages in the New Testament that define the content of that unity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received for, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Those are central truths of the Christian faith. And they help to define what genuine unity must be like, which we learn by sanctification through the word that comes in the way Jesus has described. Then there is the incarnation that is also essential. First John chapter four, by this you know that the spirit of God, uh, by, know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God and every spirit that does not, uh, does not confess Jesus is not from God. And so there is a content to the unity of the faith Jesus did come from God. He is the incarnate Son of God. And those who deny that are outside of the faith. That's why, by the way, we at the Village Church and in the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination with which we're associated have fellowship with all of those who hold to the orthodox, historic Christian faith. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude put it. So most of those 41,000 denominations hold to those orthodox truths that the church has recognized as coming from the apostles through the scriptures. While we may differ in many other ways, we differ in organizational structure with many of those groups, with the kind of local church authority that they espouse, with their particular missions emphasis, we may differ in worship style, and cultural engagement, and a whole host of other ways we might differ with those organizations. But holding to those historic Christian truths are what binds us together and provides for the unity of the faith in the body of Christ. And so as we grow in Christ, we share a unity with Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists and Pentecostals and Anglicans and Episcopalians and Lutherans and all kinds of other denominations, as long as they believe in the biblical Jesus, as long as they trust Jesus alone for their personal salvation, even though they may do things in a different way than we do them. That's the kind of unity Jesus prays for. And it is not out of reach. That kind of unity is not out of reach. And it is not dependent on institutional organization. Now, here's the most amazing thing about this prayer for unity. It's purpose. Listen to this, verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may all be in us. Listen to this. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you realize how significant that purpose is with respect to unity? You see, dear friends, the world will know, listen to this carefully, the world will know whether Jesus came from the Father based on the answer to Jesus' prayer for unity. If we are always at each other's throats, always criticizing each other and other groups, the world will look at us and conclude that Jesus 
is not from God. It's that significant. But if we, growing in Christ-likeness, also grow in unity with our brothers and sisters in our own church and with believers in other churches, then the world will look at the church and they will know that the Father has sent the Son. That's astonishing, isn't it? And that the Father has loved those whom he has taken out of the world and given to Christ. This should remind you of another passage that we studied years ago, it seems, in John chapter 13. Remember that? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then Jesus says this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, have love for one another. Unity and love, these are the marks of the Christian. And they are the way the message of the gospel effectively communicates to the world. That's why Jesus prays that we would be unified for the world. The purpose of unity is evangelistic and missional. If we want to fulfill our mission, we must seek to love one another and commit ourselves to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Paul describes in Ephesians. And then there is unity's provision. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. This is an astonishing statement. I, I, there's so much in here, I just wish we would just sort of stop and think about it sometimes. Listen to what Jesus says. The glory that you, Father, have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. The Father has given glory to the Son, and the glory that the Son has displayed during his earthly ministry is what is in view there. And Jesus says that he has given that same glory to his disciples. And that means you and me. In our union with Jesus, it's all about the union we have with Jesus. We are made partakers of his glory. Do you realize how significant that is for your life? That the very nature and character of God is in some measure demonstrably ours. The apostles understood the significance of this extraordinary truth. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us, listen, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has gained, granted us uh, his precious and very great promises, listen, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Partakers of the divine nature. Can you even get your head around such a thing? Now, that doesn't make us Jesus Christ, but we still battle, you see, with our sinful nature while we're in this world. But it does mean that through the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, we now live with the capacity for holiness. And Jesus says that he has given us that glory so that we may be one. 
And if that isn't enough to blow your mind, listen to the final petition in Jesus' prayer. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. This prayer ends where it began where Jesus was praying for the glory of God. He prayed that he would have the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. The full effulgence of the glory of God in heaven. And now, at the end of this prayer, he prays that we would experience the same glory with him. That those whom the Father has given to the Son would ultimately experience the glory that the Son has, had, has been given for eternity past in the presence of the Father with him. In fact, the verb in this verse is not expressed strongly enough in the English Standard Version where it says, Father, I desire that they. Desire is not just that Jesus wishes that they would, that they would, uh, that this would be the case. The King James Version more properly expresses it. He says, I will that they experience this glory. This is strongly stated. Jesus fully expects the Father to answer this prayer affirmatively. This brings the salvation from God's perspective to its truly glorious conclusion, that the Father takes a people out of the world. The Father gives those people to Christ. The Father gives Christ the authority over all people to give eternal life to all those whom the Father gives to Christ. Christ gives eternal life to everyone, those given to him by the Father. The Father keeps those given to Christ in the name of the Father through the sanctification by the Word of God. And through sanctification, he brings unity and the church, and he brings the church home to an eternity to experience the glory that the Son had with the Father from all eternity. Is there an amen somewhere in there? What an expansive picture of the salvation God has prepared for those who love him, who are those who are loved by God from the foundation of the world. And then there is the grand summation where he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. And so it all comes together. The world does not know God. But those the Father has taken out of the world, those who believe, they know that the Father has sent the Son, and they include us who believe. Christ has made himself known to us so that the love of the Father for the Son will be in us, just as Jesus dwells in us by his Spirit. What an incredible prayer. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Heavenly Father, give us the faith to believe every aspect of this glorious prayer so that we might be transformed in our minds, wills, and emotions, transformed into the nature and character of the Lord Jesus Christ, transformed so that we would be united in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord of all that we would be united for the world, knowing that the world is watching, so that the world would be deeply affected by the church and turn in faith to Jesus. 
We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.